So our scripture passage this morning is again from the book of Genesis. We've been making our way through the earliest chapters of Genesis, what's often referred to as primeval history. This is, this is pre-civilization or the very earliest beginnings of civilization recorded in Genesis 1 through 11. And we are now in Genesis chapter 6. I don't know the last time you heard a message on this passage that we're going to read. Um, but it's been a long time since I've tried to preach one. We're going to read Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 to 8. And then by God's grace we're going to learn something from it. Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. Find it in your Bible app in the bulletin or in your Bible if you have one. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is God's word. Well, okay. If we have time for questions, don't ask any. Um... As I mentioned at the very beginning, we are in Genesis, the earliest chapters of Genesis, because we believe that these chapters form, form the foundation of the world. And what I mean is this. Let me try to explain this. Everybody lives out of a story. The story you believe about the history of the world, where it came from, where it's going, all that kind of stuff, the story you believe intuitively, subconsciously, will direct how you live in that world. Our culture largely believes a story that came out of the 16th and 17th century known as the Enlightenment. It's a 500-year-old, some odd, four or 500-year-old story that directs the way most people in our culture live their lives. We are studying the earliest chapters of Genesis because we believe that the Bible, the Bible's story about reality ought to shape how we live in this world, how we think about the world and how we live in this world. And so because we're not so arrogant as to think just because you're a Christian, you necessarily don't live in this world and you're able to uh, live entirely by a different story, we're not that arrogant. We know that we live in this world. We know that we eat, sleep, and drink and imbibe the same cultural uh, waters that the rest of the people who live in modern Western society do, we need to be reprogrammed. So that's why we're going back to the earliest chapters of the Bible, to be reprogrammed. 
to understand the true story of the world and to figure out the implications for how we ought to live as people who believe the true story of the world. And today, mama mia, we've got a tough story in front of us. And it's tough it's tough in two ways. First of all, it's, it's just plain tough to understand or believe, okay? Sons of God coming and marrying daughters of men. What's that all about? These Nephilim or Nephilim, depending on how you pronounce it. What on earth are those things? 120 years. What does that mean? God's sorry for something? What on earth does that mean? It's just really tough to believe and understand. And then it's really tough to hear, especially verses 5 through 7, because that's where, where God says things like, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's not very, that's not nice. That doesn't sound nice, does it? This is God's indictment on the human heart. And so for some of us, You might be sitting here thinking, this is absurd. I can't believe in 21st century Canada, we are reading these stories and trying to understand the truth of them. They're just weird myths. This is absurd. And for others of us, this sounds alarmist, hearing this story about how wicked and evil human beings are. Come on, like, relax. That's kind of a downer. And, you know, focusing on that is not good for my heart and for my sort of self-worth. I was like, how do I address that quickly? And here's what I'm going to say. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus, who is the center of the Christian faith, all throughout the Gospels, Jesus, when he had to teach hard things that were hard to believe or hard to accept, he would say this. He would say, Let he who has ears, let them hear. And what he was saying was, don't dismiss what I'm about to say to you or what I've just said to you. Don't ignore it. Don't tune it out. Don't scorn it and sniff at it and think, this is not relevant to me and my life. It's just weird. He would say, If you have ears to hear, listen, listen, listen. And so I'm just introducing, I guess, I'm just making the appeal. God has truth for us to hear this morning, but you got to have ears to listen. And I'm praying that you do. There's three things we're going to look at in this passage, and it's structured this way. We're going to to look at the thing that we don't know for sure. what we don't know for sure, then we're going to look at what we do know for sure, and then we're going to look at what we need to know for sure. What we don't know for sure, what we do know for sure, what we need to know for sure, here we go. Number one, what we don't know for sure, there's lots of things in this passage that we don't know for sure, and they're contained primarily in verses one to four. The story about the sons of God who saw the daughters of men and they went into them and and the Nephilim were on the earth. All this kind of stuff. What is going on here? All right. Very quickly, and I will try to be as clear as possible, there's three main ways to understand this passage. The first is that these sons of God 
were fallen angels that had taken possession of human bodies and were seeking to procreate on the earth by intermarrying with human women. And the Nephilim that are mentioned here in the, for the first time in verse, in verse 4, they were the offspring of these fallen angels. And you might say, well, that sounds kind of crazy, but we just came off of looking at Genesis 3 for three weeks where there's a talking serpent. So it's not that crazy, okay? And in fact, there's good reasons to believe that this is what's going on. So for example, sons of God, that term when son of God is used plural, sons of God, throughout the Old Testament, it always refers to angels, and in the New Testament, there's allusions to this passage in places like 2 Peter 2 and Jude, everybody's favorite New Testament book, Jude verses 6 and 7. And so there's reasons to think that possibly that's what's going on here. This was the position of a lot of Jewish interpreters of Genesis and a lot of ancient interpreters of Genesis, and it's actually seen a resurgence in modern times as well. So it's not that out there, but there are problems with it. The first major problem is, is that nowhere in Genesis up to this point is there any talk of angels, okay? We have the serpent, but even the serpent isn't identified as an angel up until this point. And so, so they just sort of pop up out of nowhere. Furthermore, Jesus says in the New Testament that angels do not marry and they are not given in marriage, but there is a way around that. But more importantly, if that's what's going on here, then it makes angels responsible for God's judgment that's about to come, not human beings. And so that's a, a big problem because the whole point of Genesis 6 through 9 is that God is finally going to bring his judgment on the human race. And if angels, fallen, even if they're fallen angels, are responsible for that, that doesn't exactly fit. So, that could be what's going on there's a good chance it's not what, what's going on, okay? Um, the second way you could read this is to say that these sons of God were ancient Canaanite kings. These were ancient royal, like royalty, ancient Canaanite kings who were involving themselves in polygamy. So they were, um, it says that they saw the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives as they chose. In other words, they started creating harems for themselves. Now, only a few scholars hold to this view, and that's because there's no real evidence of Canaanite kings in the Old Testament around this time. Um, it's a weird term to use for Canaanite kings, to call them sons of God. That's kind of strange. And it's, it's largely based on the readings of other ancient Near Eastern texts. Babylonian texts, Assyrian texts, Egyptian texts, these texts. So, probably not that one. There's one more. And this is the least extraordinary. And so, in some ways, to me, it's the most attractive. Okay, you know, have you ever heard of Occam's razor? The simplest explanation is probably the right one kind of thing. So I'm not saying Occam's razor really applies here, but it might. The third and probably most popular, if I can say, understanding of what's going on here is this. This is a description of the godly line of Seth. They are the sons of God intermarrying with the ungodly line of Cain which God was opposed to. 
In other words, another way of saying it is that it was a mixture of the seed of the woman from Genesis chapter 3 that was promised in Genesis chapter 3 and was begun in Genesis chapter 4 and the seed of the serpent which was mentioned in Genesis chapter 3. And that, of course, you can, just thinking about it, that sounds terrible, right? That sounds like a very bad thing. That the seed of the woman, who the Messiah was supposed to come through, the one who was going to destroy the seed of the serpent, if those two seeds start mixing, we got trouble. And the reason that this seems to fit is because that theme of the two lines of, of, and these two seeds has already been introduced in Genesis and has been developing in the earlier chapters. Furthermore, Genesis chapter 4 gives us Cain's ungodly line in a genealogy. Genesis chapter 5, which you didn't hear a sermon on, you can thank me for that, um, gives the genealogy of the godly line of Seth, and so it fits the the, the primary context here. It also fits the context of the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Old Testament, because remember what we've been saying over and over and over again, and I apologize, guests, you're, you're not kind of privy to all of this, but we've been saying that the first audience to these stories are a bunch of Israelites sitting around campfires in the desert on their way out of Egypt and to Canaan, and they're about to go into this promised land, right? They're about to take over the Canaanite land. God's going to give them their own land. And, and the whole point of, of Moses telling them this story at this time is he wants to warn them. Look, you're going to go into pagan territory. There's going to be pagan women there. And you're going to be lured into marrying them. Don't do it. If you do it, it will be a disaster. Listen to this story about your ancestors. You get what I'm saying? What's the story? Verse 2. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. And so they took as their wives as they chose. In other words, these sons of God, they were seduced by the superficial appearance of these women. They were hot, okay? And they wanted them because they were looking at the physical appearance. They desired them. And they took the ones that they chose. Now, here's the thing. If you've been here the whole time, hopefully, you hear an echo. And the echo is of Genesis chapter 3 where it says that Eve looked at the fruit. She saw it was desirable. And what did she do? She took. And now here, the sons of God are looking at these women, seeing that they are oh so desirable, and they took. You see, this is a culmination, okay, of all the rebellion that's been happening in chapter 3, and then in chapter 4, and now it's, it's culminating in chapter 6. That's why the title of the sermon is The Race to the Bottom. So the evil that we've been seeing sort of developing in these early chapters, it's, it's, it's starting to get faster and faster and faster and bigger and bigger and bigger and it's incorporating more and more people. Now, again, I'm not dogmatic, but I think it's the best understanding of what's going on here. What about the Nephilim? What about these characters? Okay, well, this word that's used here, the only other place it's used is in Numbers chapter 13. And that's the story where Uh, The spies who went into Canaan, they come back and they give their report to Moses. And what do they say? They say, 
we can't go in there. We can't take these guys because they are giants, Nephilim. And we are like grasshoppers before them. And so these Nephilim may have been actual physical giants. Some scholars actually think that Goliath is like sort of one of the last remaining Nephilim, okay, because he was like nine feet tall. Um, But even if that's not exactly what's going on here, they are most certainly giants in terms of their accomplishments, okay? Remember last week we saw these, uh, these these mighty descendants of Lamech and his sons who were accomplishing great things, inventing music and tools and, and animal husbandry and agriculture and all this kind of stuff. These were these mighty men who were, who were advancing civilization and doing great things. The thing was, was that they were, mighty also means violent. It doesn't just mean great guys, but it means that they were violent as well. So these were the conquerors of, of ancient times. And, you know, they were celebrated and they were feared at the same time. Kind of like modern-day gangsters or gang leaders, okay? They've got respect because they're terrified, because they're horribly violent, or drug lords or something. This is kind of the feel. Again, you know, we don't know exactly what's going on, but that's sort of the feel. So, so the question becomes, why does Moses tell them all this stuff? I mean, they probably understood because they were in the culture and we're not, but... But why do we still have it? Well, that introduces us to the second point. What we do know for sure. What we do know for sure. And there's two things that we do know for sure. Here's the first thing. Humankind, at this point, has gotten so bad that every aspect of it is evil. That's what verse 5 is saying. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And listen to this. Every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. And I'm going to change it all the time. It's, it's, this, it's this, this spoken... Why did I do that? I don't know. It's this... Because it's... it's I'm trying to get this idea that, that as you listen to it, every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. It's, it's, you, the idea is you're supposed to picture like a boulder picking up speed as it's ran, running down a hill. And God is seeing this in humanity. He's seeing that, that every inclination of the thoughts of their heart is only evil continually. In other words, it's pervasive. It's everywhere. There's no part of human culture that has not been touched by this wickedness. And it's happening all the time. That is, there's no break in it. There's no pause in it. It's just, it's, it's this one channel that's playing and it's playing constantly. This is what the Bible calls total depravity. It's a biblical doctrine. Nothing was untouched by this evil. Now listen. Listen. Again, for those of you who have been here week after week, I can understand if you're sitting and going, just like, it's just more evil talk. Every week, though, like ever since Genesis 3, we've been talking about how bad people are. And it's just bad people here and bad people there and it's bad, bad, bad. And now you're saying it's really bad as if it wasn't bad enough last time. Why all the bad? You've got to read this as one big story, Okay. And remember, every good story has to have a crisis. 
Every good story has to have a crisis that is, that is getting worse and worse and worse and worse until at some point there's, there's a desperate need for resolution. Well, all of Genesis, from Genesis chapter 3 to Genesis chapter 6, has been building to this crisis point. Moses has been trying to show his original audience, trying to show you and show me, that at the root of the human heart, we are bad, real bad, way badder than you want to admit you are. Now, again, maybe you're here and you're like, okay, look, I know, I know I'm kind of bad. I get that. But I know that my human heart is not evil all the time. That's pretty extreme. I I, I want to do bad things sometimes, but most of the time they're not even all that bad. And there's lots of times where I want to do good, but you've got to remember the context here. Genesis 3 through 6, Cain and Lamech rebelled against God in Genesis 4, and now here, even the godly line, we thought there was going to be hope in this godly line in Genesis 4 when Seth was born, but Seth's descendants are now doing the same thing. They're rebelling against God. What is our fundamental problem is it that we commit murder? Is it that human beings rape? Is it, is it, is it violence? Is that the, the fundamental human problem? No. That's not the fundamental human problem. It's out of the fundamental problem that things like murder and rape and violence and all this kind of stuff comes. The fundamental human problem is described by John Stott in this quote on the front of your bulletin. He says this, Sin is the revolt of the self against God, the dethronement of God with a view to the enthronement of oneself. Ultimately, sin is self-deification, the reckless determination to occupy the throne which belongs to God alone. That's why we're reaching the crisis point. Because now, rebellion against God has gone mainstream. Open rebellion against God. Absolute refusal to submit to the will of God. You see, this doctrine is not that we are as bad as we could be. I mean, Hitler was really, really, really bad. But if you read history, apparently Hitler was very good too and loved his mother the point is, is that every part of us is so marred by fundamental self-will, by self-absorption, by a desire to be our own masters. Here, the sons of God, what does it say? They married the daughters of men because they wanted to. It says they took as their wives any that they chose. And I mean this with all respect. They literally thought in their heads, to hell with what God wants. That's the fundamental problem with the human heart. Test your heart. Test your heart just for a moment. Remember I said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Test your heart at this moment. Don't tell me what to do. I've never met a human being yet who deep down in their soul does not say 
to God and to everyone around them. Don't tell me what to do. Because we are so full of our own longing to be the center that any infringement on that sets us off. Thank God it sets us off in small ways and not big ways, but it sets us off. You know, I can't go I can't go hammering on you about your fundamental sinful nature without doing a little, you know, you know, when my mom always told me, if you point at someone, there's three fingers pointing at you, so be very, very careful. So I thought I better point at myself a little bit. And to my shame, I found so many minor examples. I struggle with people who drive slow. Don't you have respect for those of us who have to get somewhere on time? I remember being in, I think it was Canadian Tire. I may have told this story before, being in Canadian Tire. And I was getting my stuff and I was on my way to the cash register and I saw a senior shuffling. They were quite senior, so they were shuffling towards the cash. And they didn't have a lot of items, but I saw the big purse and I just knew. And so I turned on the jets so that I would get to that cash register before this person. I still tell the story of when my wife was pregnant out to here and trying to make some money by cleaning houses and I strolled into the kitchen and said, my dear, I have worked very hard to rearrange my schedule today so that you can just relax and do whatever you want. I've got the kids, go do whatever you want. And she said, oh, thanks. And I was like, where is my greatest husband ever sticker? <laughs> Friends, look, in our culture and in our hearts, if we're honest, it's me over you. It's, it's me instead of you. It's me despite you. It's even me if I have to go through you. And this is where the human race went That's the first thing we know for sure. The second thing we know for sure is that God will judge it. Verse 3. My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Translation, I've had enough, and the clock is ticking. That reference to 120 years is likely a reference to the time of when the, the ark was completed. It took Noah to... 120 years to build the ark. And so God is patient. He hasn't run out the clock, but the clock is now ticking, and his plan is to wipe everything out. That's what he says in verse 7. I will blot out man and everything else. And I know when we think of judgment and we think of the judgment of God, we want to picture kind of a, like a toddler, you know, lashing out in anger, falling on the floor and having a tantrum because they got no control of their emotions. But that is not what God does at all. Nor does he just throw his judgment on the earth in a, in a rage or, or even sort of impassively. Some people say, well, you know, God didn't seem to really care about the, the, the world, so he just judged it. But if you look at verse 6, it says, The Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart. God was emotionally involved. This was no snap decision. 
it grieved him. He was, he was hurt emotionally. It broke God's heart to see his creation behaving this way. And yet, and yet, and yet, he had to do something about it. The whole world had turned in on itself and was acting it out, some in very horrible, violent ways. God can't ignore that. He can't just turn a blind eye to that. And I know that if we would all just stop and think about it for a couple of minutes, we got to admit that makes sense to us. Because we want justice. We're not fine when a judge lets a convicted whatever. Well, it was just recently on the news. Uh, a guy, a drunk, drunk driver who had killed a whole bunch of people was up for parole and he was about to be paroled and it was on the news and people were absolutely apoplectic at the prospect that this guy was going to get to go out of jail after too few years having killed people as a, in a motor vehicle because we want justice. Our problem is, is we just don't realize that we deserve that justice. So we want justice for everybody else. But not so much for ourselves. So here we are in the crisis, okay? This is, we're in the darkest point now, okay? It's been getting darker and darker and darker. Our timing for this has been great because now you go home at 4.30 and you already have to turn your, your lights on uh, to find your, your key to open the door. It's very, very depressing to live in Canada at this time of year. And it's so dark all the time. Well, this is where we are. We're in the crisis, and it's dark. God knows our hearts, and he's going to judge this world. That's what we know for sure. And then we can't stop there. we gotta, we got to have one last point. What we need to know for sure. Because without this last point, everything is dark and everything is depressing, and you would walk out of this place pretty glum. But thankfully, this isn't where it ends. Look at verse 8. See, verse 8 is a little glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel. It says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And now it sound, it's weird. You read this whole passage and then it just pops up. Oh, and Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And it seems like it's kind of tacked on, but it's not. That word favor is very often translated grace throughout the Bible. And what it means is God's undeserved kindness. So when it says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, there was one man that God had decided to shine his kindness and his light on and not lay his judgment upon. And this is the first instance of that word grace being used in the Bible at all. And it closes this section with that glimmer of hope. Now here's what I want you to see, and I hope I explain this properly. God is going to bring judgment. He has to bring judgment. And yet, he wants to show favor on Noah. He wants to show mercy. How in the world is he going to do these two things? The hint is in verse 6 where it says that God regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him in his heart. It grieved him. In other words, God, if I can use this term, he suffered at seeing the pain that we were causing to ourselves in this world. He was emotionally affected by it. And there's a philosopher by the name of Nicholas Wolterstorff who says that the tears of God are the meaning of history. And here's what he means by that. 
If you look at the story of human history, much of human history can be understood this way. Our sin has been causing God's grief. It's been causing his sorrow. Every act of evil is pulling tears from God. It breaks his heart because that's not how he created things to be. And it's put him in a position where he must judge it because God is a holy and righteous judge and he cannot let sin go unpunished. But that's only part of the story. Because the other thread is that history is all about our deliverance. God grieved over this evil. Again, he's not some tantrum-throwing toddler looking to smoke his enemies. He is a pained father, and he is saddened to see his beloved destroying themselves and destroying the rest of the creation that he has made. And, but he's got to deal with it. He wants to show grace, but he wants to show justice. How does he do this? Well, on the cross of Jesus Christ, God dealt with our sin, with our condemnation. He judged it. But he judged it by pouring out that judgment on his own perfect son who was not the cause of any of this brokenness and not the cause of any of this wickedness and violence. But that son stood in our place and he took that judgment on, our, on his shoulders for us so that the justice of God and the mercy of God could meet and actually be fulfilled so that you could see the favor of God. You could experience his kindness, even though you are part of the problem. But now, but now, where do we go from here? What are you going to do for God's sorrow? What causes God's sorrow? What causes God grief? It's the same thing today as it was then. Violence, injustice, brokenness in the world. It causes God's sorrow. But you and I, as those who have been freed from that condemnation, who have been rescued from that judgment, we now can participate in relieving the sorrow of God. Everywhere that you try to bring, everywhere that you try to bring healing to brokenness, everywhere that you advocate for justice in the face of injustice, anywhere that you try to protect the most vulnerable from violence, you are participating in relieving God's sorrow. You are participating in his work of bringing about his mercy and grace that will extend to the ends of the earth just as his judgment one day did. That's our calling. That's our calling as a church. Those of you who are thinking about coming to the membership class, you're just getting a little preview right now. That's our calling as a church. That's your calling as a follower of Jesus Christ. I don't care what you do. I don't care if you're a businessman. I don't care if you're a student. It doesn't matter if you are uh, an employer or an employee in your friendships, in your neighborhood, wherever you find yourself. When you stand in the gap to relieve the suffering or the violence or the brokenness in the world that God has placed you in, you are participating in His work. And you are fulfilling your calling as His child. It's a dark story, no doubt. 
But Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness. And as John said in his gospel, chapter 1, when Jesus shone in the darkness, the darkness could not overcome it.